0: Welcome to The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and today we're speaking with poet and novelist Michael Meyerhofer. Michael's fifth book of poems, Ragged Eden, is forthcoming from Glassfire Press. He's also the author of a fantasy series and serves as the poetry editor of Atticus Review. His work has appeared in Rattle, Hayden's Ferry, Plowshares Diagram, Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine, and other journals. For more information and an embarrassing childhood photo, you can visit him online at www.troublewithhammers.com. Now I've known Michael for a number of years already. We uh, first met uh, participating in a panel about digital publishing and running literary journals in a technological age. And since then, we've continued to stay in touch. We share a common passion for fantasy novels and for world building, and much of that comes into play in our conversation. Let's jump right in. Let's see,
1: there's a lot of things I do that are absolutely insane, at least insane from my perspective, to kind of easy insane. Uh, one of the things I do is, like, I'm hopelessly addicted to weightlifting. That kind of does its does thing. Um, I collect pocket knives. And so I got, like, a giant box with, like, 50 of them at my feet. Um, I love role-playing games. I grew up on Nintendo, Final Fantasy, all that stuff. And then um, I, you mentioned that I also write fiction. Uh, I actually started out as a fantasy writer. And basically all I read for the first you know, until I was probably about 20 or so, it was just science fiction and fantasy. Uh, so I grew up on Dungeons and & Dragons and all that stuff. Yet, weirdly enough, I never played the tabletop games. Uh, that was kind of a kind of an odd deal. I went to a Catholic school, and it was kind of a conservative community. And I remember they sent home this newsletter saying that uh, if we play Dungeons & Dragons, we might actually become spontaneously possessed. You know, uh, when I was a little kid when I read this. So I actually... Kind of thought it was real, even though I was reading all that stuff in book form. And my family, to their credit, they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was stupid. But because of that, no one else was ever interested in those games. So like my only like outlet was was fantasy novels and sci-fi novels. So that kind of got my interest going in that. And that actually kind of got me into writing, which was also one of the things that kind of kept me sane. I say kind of, because I'm not sure how well it worked.
0: When you were growing up, you didn't have any, you didn't have very many opportunities or any opportunities to play these tabletop role-playing games. As you've uh, gotten older, have you had chances to play?
1: Well, it's it's funny you ask that because I remember when I was undergrad, suddenly I had the opportunity, but it's it's kind of weird. By then, I was almost too shy to do it uh, because the people who were inviting me, they'd been playing all their lives, and I had kind of, I was kind of halfway between poetry and fantasy at that point. Well, which is not to say I, I. Preferred one to the other, but I had the feeling, especially as an undergrad, that you have to wear a certain mask. Mm. So, like, if you're a fantasy writer, you can't be a poet. If you're a poet, you can't be a fantasy writer. If you're a sci-fi writer, you can't also be a literary fiction writer, which is, of course, not true. But that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of the what was being drilled into my head. So I ended up really not ever taking advantage of that, which I regret in my nerdiness.
0: That that you had to had to hide away this part of your nerdiness. And and as an adult now, as as a working professional, is there time in your schedule or do you find um, that you channel those interests and energies into your writing as opposed to finding a group locally?
1: I mostly channel it into my writing, but that's just kind of the the regular difficulty that I think you have as an adjunct trying to find a community wherever you are. Uh, Because I think when you come in there, if you don't have close department that you're working with, you're kind of the new face, so it's kind of hard to make that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, if you're someone like me, you're, you know, socially anxious as you can get, so <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to channel a lot of that into my writing, and then, you know, through, through writing forums and stuff like that, but I still never had the opportunity to actually play.
0: Well, perhaps you'll get an opportunity one of these days <laughs> soon. I guess a related question would be, you mentioned that there there seemed to be, at least in when you were in school, this tension between identifying as a fantasy writer or identifying as a poet what why do you feel it's it's that way why do they feel like they're separate camps or separate communities well
1: that's a very odd deal because it's one of those things that everyone thinks exists but they all think that someone else is the cause in other words like uh, especially in grad school I remember talking to many people and they'd say you know oh I heard you write fantasy You're like oh yeah yeah and they would they would always kind of take me aside and say, "Hey, listen. I know other people will say that if you write that, you know, this genre is legit and this genre isn't. But I personally don't feel that way. Um, I always thought that was really strange because I've never actually talked to anyone who did think that one whole genre of writing is better than another. Mm. You know, uh, I'm sure people feel that way, but no one ever really seems to actually say that. So I think it's just this feeling of. there's this big gulf between what's quote-unquote literary and what's, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, that has a primary focus on entertainment, Uh, even though I'm not sure that's a good definition of genre writing. Uh, But I think there's this difference. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, I think it's a Stephen King quote, and Mm -hmm. I'm totally going to butcher this. I'm just going to try and paraphrase it. But I think he says that so-called literary writing is focusing on what the piece of writing means to the author, and then genre writing is focusing on what the piece means to the reader, yet both pieces have to focus on entertainment first, and they're both equally selfish. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, so for me, poetry and fantasy were never really all that different. It may seem different to other people, but for me, it was just two sides of the same coin. So I would kind of bounce from one to the other, you know, often in the same you know same day, same week, I get tired of one, I go to the other one for a while, that would refresh the original one, I go back and forth and back and forth. So for me, they really actually help each other.
0: Do, do you know of other writers that alternate between or do both uh, fantasy and poetry?
1: I don't know too many who do fantasy. I know Jean Hall Gailey will, will dabble in uh, sci-fi fantasy themed poetry, which is a, and she writes amazing poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I know a lot of poets uh, who also write fiction, and fiction writers who also write poetry. Just as a general thing, in my experience, And this is just my experience, but I find that the people who are the best writers, in my opinion, or the ones I'm most drawn to, are ones who have uh, more than one genre under their belt. Mm. One seems to really benefit the other. You don't necessarily have to write fiction to write good poetry or vice versa, but it just seems to me that it really does help you in a lot of different ways if you do.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's something about this moving beyond just sort of a static, rigid definition of genre or static, rigid definition of a type of writing to, to thinking about you know the ways in which they bleed into each other or inform each other. Because I'm with you, I, I definitely believe that there's, there really shouldn't be any issues with moving between different styles of writing or types of writing and I, I definitely know some of my my own poetry mentors, like Chris Abani, operate in multiple genres at the same time. He's, he's always writing. It, it's kind of scary, actually. He told me once that he usually has two or three projects going at any given point in time, and oh, yeah. he alternates between them, and they're all different genres. So there's, so there's like a poetry manuscript, and then there's a fiction novel that he's working on and then there might be a a set of essays he's working on and whenever he gets tired of one he moves on to the other one and he just keeps rotating rotating you know i I think if you're capable of doing that that's fantastic um i I know some people are are very focused they need to target and zero in on, on one project at a time to get
1: it done yeah there's definitely nothing wrong with doing that just for me one always helps with the other like i instead of taking you know one lane and moving forward as fast as I can, I find I move better in that lane if I change lanes all the time. Mm. It sounds totally contradictory, but it really seems to work. I remember I was guest lecturing for uh, my mentor, Allison Joseph. And uh, one of the things I really like is e- quote unquote Eastern poetry forms. I don't speak a lick of Japanese, but I love Eastern forms, haikus, sunryu, tanka as they've kind of evolved over time. And so I was sort of guest lecturing to her students on this and um, kind of talking about some of the general differences between that and I guess, quote unquote, Western verse or longer verse, I guess. And basically what we came up with is just, it just gives you more tools in the toolbox. Uh, Because I really do think that uh, anything that you ever experience or see or think about can be written about, but it does seem like it it might make a better poem. It might make a better story, a better essay. Well, if it makes a better poem, what kind of poem? rhyming poem, a long poem, a short poem, etc. So it really seems like the more uh, the more genres you have, a little bit of knowledge of benefits everything else. At least I hope
0: so. So I I guess one of the the other maybe taking a slightly different tack on this is thinking about the ways in which you you mentioned some of your other obsessions. Um, Do you feel like they are intertwined in some way? that you spoke of like this interest and, and fascination with pocket knives and also with weightlifting. Where, where did these begin?
1: Again, they probably came from my dad. Like I said, uh, growing up, I was a very, very deathly shy kid. Uh, you know, I was a very small kid, lots of birth defects, lots of, you know, anxiety and, and depression even. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of it, like I said, from kind of this BS macho thing. But um, having an interest in fantasy, well, if you have an interest in fantasy, it often leads to an interest in swords. Uh, but swords are more expensive than knives. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I think, I think, and I have plenty of those too. But I think that's kind of what led to that. And then also, my dad uh, was sort of my role model for this in a sense too, because he's you know he's a science geek just like me, but he's also a big dude. Like he he started working out a lot when he was a kid. And he kind of instilled that in me, and I just started really really enjoying it. Um, mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it's a good stress relief. On the, on the other hand, it kind of gave me a little bit more confidence to kind of stand up to bullies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then this sounds kind of silly, but especially as a little kid or as a, as a teenager, I noticed that when I started lifting weights, you know, I had less problems with bullies. And I kind of got to thinking, well, why don't I keep doing it? And then maybe I can sort of, you know, help other people who are being bullied the same way occasionally people helped me. Uh, mm-hmm. So that kind of became just part of my personality, I guess.
0: And, that, there, yeah. and part was, of your yeah. origin story as a superhero, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And then just kind of um, something that it, it's a way to kind of compete against myself. So in a way, it doesn't really seem that different than writing. Because when I write, sure, I'm competing against a, a friendly competition against other writers that's you mm-hmm. can get the best poem that week. But it's mainly just to see, can I write better today than I wrote last year or last week? hmm so it's it's just a way to kind of trick my brain and my body into working harder and kind of not getting discouraged in this world we live in. So,
0: Mm -hmm. If you're interested in pocket knives and swords, this sounds okay. Have you watched, um, I think it's on History Channel, the Forged in Fire TV show? Are you familiar with it? Yeah,
1: I'm familiar with it. I haven't seen it yet. It's been highly recommended. I haven't got to it yet. Uh, but I used to watch things like, you know, uh, Deadliest Warrior and like pretty much every every documentary on uh, medieval battles you could find on, on YouTube I've probably seen. so. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, I, I, I became addicted to Fortune Fire last year and I ended up watching like all sorts of episodes, a lot of episodes. And it, it was fascinating to me, I, I think, one, because... I had a superficial knowledge of the process, but seeing the different techniques and approaches and also seeing sort of the stress that like very talented blacksmiths, experienced swordsmiths and smiths nice would go through because of a really short, you know, like three hour or four hour window in which they had to produce a blade with a handle. You know, it, it just, there was a lot of that that reminded me of, The writing process and how small seemingly insignificant flaws or misjudgments in our preparation or in our setup could you know lead to like huge problems in the end result Um, oh absolutely yeah but anyways I I found it fascinating to to watch you know that particular show think about that every time I see a knife and I think um you know there's a whole story behind each blade
1: well, that actually reminds me of a uh, uh, episode, I think, of Nova. I actually used to show this in a, a Zen poetry class I would teach. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but it was about the Ulfbert, uh, the Viking sword that used carbon-enriched carbon, uh, carbon rich, steel. Uh-huh. And they actually say that it was basically as good or better than the you know than the renowned Japanese katana. And the episode was about this uh, blacksmith actually learning how to forge a modern Ulfbert and how we did it. And one of the things he said, I thought was very interesting. He said, um, I don't need a sword. I don't need to make a sword, but I have to make them, which I thought was very, very interesting because that kind of goes with the whole Zen idea of whatever you're doing, you're doing it because you have to do it. Like if you're pouring tea, it's because pouring tea is the most important thing in the world at that moment. Mm. And if you can have you about whatever it is, even if it's, if it's writing a poem or uh, heck, lifting weights or driving a car—anything at all, teaching anything—it um, it makes it gives you all this extra energy and passion. But also, I think a lot of anxiety too, because then you're more aware of the potential, uh, the potential failures. Like that little ping when the metal cracks when you try and to cool it. Yeah. Right, right.
0: So, have you found these obsessions with weightlifting or with um, knives and swords? Um, spilling into your your work as a writer, do you, do you find them uh, perhaps more so or more obviously, I guess, in in fantasy? But does that also show up in poetry?
1: Uh, a little bit, a little bit here and there, because whatever whatever I'm doing or whatever I care about, I like to either write about directly in my writing or at least poke fun at, you know, kind of kind of have a sense of humor about the absurdity that is me. Uh, so I, I will reference that stuff a little bit. Usually my friends are like, hey, dude, stop writing about knives and weightlifting. You sound like a dork. It's like, all right, all right, I'll, I'll tone it down.
0: <laughs> Does this also inform the type of characters you write about?
1: I think so, maybe. Because uh, one of the things I really like to do, and I didn't really realize I was doing this, I just noticed after a while that I was doing this, is I like to take certain tropes and then turn them on their head. So if you have a character who's very like, stereotypically macho, well, that's a two-dimensional character. So what else could he do with that? With that trope? Well, maybe he has inner, you know, depression, other conflicts that are going on, a lot of internal conflict. So you have to have you have to have three-dimensional characters in whatever you're doing, and it's also a way I found to kind of put in some commentary on certain, I guess, stereotypes, certain ways of living, kind of critique that. So yeah, for example, even though I'll sometimes write rather masculine characters, I also have. A real problem with a lot of masculinity. I think a lot of it is very, very toxic and destructive. So it's a way to kind of take those bad elements and try and you know work them, you know, kind of uh, work them out, and kind of present a better way of doing things. I guess.
0: Could you give us an example of maybe a character from one of your stories in which this this happens?
1: Sure. Um, well, two of my favorite characters in the the fantasy series, watching well, a few of them, are like openly gay characters. And playing with that uh, trope, like the stereotype is, well, if you're going to make a character gay, then they have to be also hyper-masculine and not be very sensitive and you're going to overdo certain things. I didn't want to do that. I basically wanted to have a three-dimensional full character in which the sexuality was a very, really a very minor component. Um, yeah, I kind of did kind of do that. And the other thing that I tried to build in a lot of the characters, as they face their adversity that they're facing whether that's an internal or an external conflict uh, and they're dealing with you know, their anger you know uh, what happens when they go too far what happens when your good character actually does something really bad and has to face that how are they going to face that uh, the other thing i really really try to do is write strong female characters and then also again not strong female characters in a two-dimensional sense you know like the this swordswoman who just randomly kills everybody for no apparent reason and doesn't actually have any depth to her character. So again, I think the real challenge is to put as much real characterization in there as possible so that all the other stuff is, I don't want to say a lesser element, but it's just something that just happens to be a part of the character.
0: Where do you turn for inspiration for this? Real life or the work of others? or Or are there particular models
1: that you you find yourself gravitating towards? A little bit of all the above, actually. Uh, I tend to get a lot of inspiration, no matter what I'm writing about, whether it's poetry or fantasy, from actual people that I meet, actual characters that I like, or people that I can't stand, whatever. Uh, But often I'll take elements from two or three or four different people and kind of put it together. I also really like, um, I'm kind of a history nerd, so if there's any historical character, I can kind of weave some of that in. I like to do it. And then beyond that, one thing I've, I started doing a few years ago is I've made up this exercise where I rather exhaustively write about every single aspect of a character's personality. So I have to fill in, even if the character's only going to be in the story for a little time a bit. I write out their past, their conflicts, their addictions, their all their physical features, their anxieties, their prejudices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of plug all that stuff in. And in order to do that, I think inevitably you end up Drawing on real life, so anything that um, that I don't like about myself or about other people or whatever, or anything that I admire and wish I had more of that quality, uh, fiction is a great way to put all that stuff in there.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what would be what would you say are some of the more surprising characters that you've come up with? Uh, let's see,
1: um, without spoiling it, I had one. Without spoiling, one I, yes, that's the yeah. problem. <laughs> <laughs> that is tough. Uh, one one character that I really really enjoyed working with was a, a character I introduced just a little bit in the second book of my fantasy trilogy, and it's just kind of a background full character, and you're not really expecting that character to do too much. And then in the third book, everything just goes absolutely insane, and that minor character uh, goes through some very very bad things, and their personality shifts quite a bit, and it's their struggle uh, to do that. They uh, yeah. <laughs> Without without spoiling it too much, yeah, but their physicality changes a great deal.
0: <laughs> wow, so yeah, so big changes happen to what seemed to be a small character, and yeah. Do you have other exercises that you turn to for inspiration? I guess what what's interesting to me is this idea of there is almost an obsessive level of detail that you're investing in your characters' backstories. Even if they may not even take a main stage, you know, position. There is that sense that you need to know everything about them.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I really—it's uh, sort of an exercise. I try to make the the fight scenes as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I was growing up and I was reading fantasy, one thing that really irritated me was these very, I would say, almost cartoonish fight scenes in which one guy. Or one woman randomly kills like 800 people. Like, how the heck could you do that? (laughs) Uh, So it it might seem, in fact, sometimes I'll even watch, this is really nerdy, but I'll just try to look up people sparring with like, you know, blunted swords online on YouTube. I just kind of watch the fight and see how the stuff actually looks, you know, um, and how short and really brutal the actual fights are and how cheap shots are not only, you know, allowed, but are totally encouraged. And that's how you would actually win. How right. kind of to make it as gritty and realistic as possible, so that in the story, you know, my heroes and my heroines don't always necessarily win in the most honorable way. Uh, but the point is just to win.
0: Are there other writers that you look to as models that you'd say, "This is a writer that I really admire for their ability to do this or to do that." When it comes to either character, or sort of that physicality, um, or Authenticness to like a, a combat scene or to a fight scene
1: Yeah, one of the first that made a really big impact on me I'm probably pronouncing this wrong But Catherine Kurtz's Durini books mm-hmm. uh, it, it was basically this uh, It was sort of an allegory, in my mind a sort of allegory about gay rights And discrimination and so on Because you had these people born with magical abilities That were being hunted and so on And I really, really liked the depth of the characters And all the twists and the, just the realism she put into her stuff couple more examples. Ray- I might be pronouncing this wrong to you, but Raymond Feist is a um, mm-hmm. really good one. And then, of course, George Martin. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> I love the depth he puts into his characters. And the show is wonderful, uh, except for when, actually the problems I have with the show are often when it deviates from the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the depth he puts into his characters is just fantastic. As a, as a history nerd and as someone who really likes uh, what I call dialogue gestures or just like physical symbolism, you know. Mm. Uh, he puts so much of that into his writing. It's just a great lesson to watch. To mm-hmm.
0: Are there movies that you you said you sometimes track down videos of people and you know fight doing particular types of combat with particular types of weapons? Do you have like films that you also turn to and think like this was an exceptionally well done you know fight sequence?
1: Oh, good question. good question. Uh, my favorite fight scene that I've seen in any movie has to be the final fight scene in Rob Roy. Because it kind of sums up everything I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you have these two characters throughout the whole movie, and you basically see them just being insanely good at fighting and just beating all of their other opponents with ease. And then when they fight at the end, it's very, very readily apparent that one is much, much, much better than the other. Mm -hmm. And yet the way it's resolved, uh, yeah. (laughs) It's a very, very cheap but absolutely wonderful ending. It really Mm -hmm. sums up the whole philosophy I have on that.
0: This is The Lit Fantastic, a show about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken, and we're speaking with the poet and fantasy novelist, Michael Meyerhofer. Let's return to the conversation. So we've been talking a lot about your fiction and, and your interest in fantasy. Are there obsessions that you feel spill over into your poetry writing? Things, maybe topics or ideas or places that you return to in your writing when you're dealing in poetry.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, one of the criticisms, and it was a very good criticism that I got when I first started writing poetry, uh, because what got me into poetry and kind of shifted me from fiction to poetry for a while was after my mom died, and I was trying to deal with that grief, and that in turn brought up kind of all these repressed, Uh, anxieties and depressions about everything that had happened to me before that and it kind of trying to write about all that poetry was just the most or the more immediate way to deal with it Uh, but one of the criticisms I got was hey you're not really letting the reader have any fun you're basically saying this means this means this and you're not leaving any room for interpretation Uh, so basically all my poems were like this kind of dry um, I'd say kind of pretentious philosophical musings about the meaning of life and blah 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 mm. so one thing that was really difficult but made poetry a lot more fun was learning how to kind of relax that control and kind of accept that there's so much that you can't even begin to define and then from there that drew me to other topics like kind of cliche topics but you know, the Zen Buddhism of course quantum physics you know, documentaries on dark matter dark energy all these things that you can't really define, but you know are there, uh, and that used as a metaphor for all this other stuff that you might sense but can't actually articulate. So, for me, kind of trying to work that in that that struggle to articulate what you can't articulate is really what provides a lot of fun in writing and also reading poetry.
0: So it, it's that quest to address the ineffable, the thing that cannot be fully articulated.
1: Exactly. What a much it, more articulate way to say it. <laughs> Well,
0: it, it, I, I think it's, it's interesting because you know there's always these, um, like, like dark matter, th- that sense that there is something present which makes its presence known even though we cannot directly see it, but other things are impacted by its presence. Black holes are the same way. We detect them by how they interfere or adjust or, or affect those things that are around them. And so I, I think it's interesting that that, that is a, a whole – I think you're right to kind of say like all these other specific you know, topics or images or subjects that you kind of address here are all really just stand-ins for this thing that you cannot say or you cannot articulate exactly, that they become the vehicles for accessing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, another thing that really drew me early on it was just—I think I can't remember what class it was. Probably a uh, early undergrad class. But was, the teacher was talking about how, in a sense, matter doesn't really exist. I mean, you can stub your toe, you can see a table, you can see a wall, but if you zoom in and in and in, and you zoom in on the atoms, and you zoom in even further, it's basically all just empty space, which is astonishing to me. So we kind of have this perception of everything as being "quote unquote" real. But it is, but it isn't at the same time, which kind of goes, I suppose, with the idea of Zen Buddhism, but also I think with poetry in general. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things poetry tries to do is clarify what's confusing, but also confuse what's clear, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, kind of turn everything yeah. on its head as much as possible. You
0: know, what is it that they say? It's like in writing, your one of your goals is to defamiliarize the familiar, to make it new again. I think what you talked about earlier, sort of a lot a lot of times our initial impulse when we're writing is to chronicle, to to journal, to catalog or to capture the literal world that we see around us or the experience that we have. And then as you said, there's this moment where we hopefully learn that mystery is also part of our reality and we need to include that. Mm-hmm, to, to to make I it think- more More, in a way, you know, the more that is not known, the more real it actually is
1: to the reader, to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I don't know if it was Einstein or who actually said this, but the, the gist of it was, if you picture knowledge as a source of light that's growing and growing and growing, no matter how large that circle, that sphere of light grows, the darkness outside it will always be greater still. So in other words, you kind of need those dueling opposites. You need that mystery to propel you forward, even though you're not going to answer your questions, Mm. just the quest to do that. It sounds cheesy, but the quest to do that, you know, it's kind of like, I think the purpose of why we're here.
0: Yeah, I I had a, like, even within sort of the form of the poem, um, this is manifested. something Chris Abani taught us years ago when I was in an MFA workshop, and he was Lean it, and we were talking about um, line breaks, and he pointed out that, you know, in most poems we begin in a place of certainty. That that hard left-hand margin that we're accustomed to is a place of certainty. We know where we're starting, and the line moves towards greater and greater uncertainty. We don't know when it's going to end, or where it will arrive, and then. So there's always a surprise. We leap off expecting one thing at the end of the line, and then we return to the next line, and hopefully we discover that we were wrong, (laughs) and that the poem has taken us in a different direction um, that keeps us engaged. If we're always arriving at something that we knew would be there, we lose interest quickly, and the poem doesn't teach us or or allow us to experience something that we haven't already known.
1: Absolutely. Well said. Well said.
0: Do you find there are, are there ways in which you have brought your poetry into your fiction writing?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of this happens on kind of an instinctual level. But I remember when I was reading, uh, I was assigned to read some of Raymond Carver's fiction, I think is, probably as an undergrad. That was the first time I'd ever read any of his fiction. And then someone mentioned, hey, you should read his poetry too. And I started reading his poetry, and I was amazed by both the similarity and the difference of the two. Mm. And, yeah, it, it kind of started this idea in my head that, the again, like I said before, the more knowledge you have in one genre, you don't have to, you can get there other different ways, but the more knowledge you have in one, the more tools it gives you for the other. So I feel like, for me, having a grasp of poetry helps me focus on small images, and especially once I kind of relinquish that kind of instinctual pretension and that control and kind of loosen up a little bit. Just let an Mm -hmm. image be an image, even if I don't know for sure consciously what it means. I think poetry helps with all that stuff, which you can incorporate in fiction, of course. But then fiction, it seems to me, especially if you're writing narrative poetry, helps you with narrative, with storytelling, Mm -hmm. with kind of stepping out of your own head and thinking, okay, what does the audience want to hear? What are they expecting? Am I going to give them what they want or am I going to turn it on its head? It kind of lets you uh, get a, they've been a little bit more of an outside perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you have ahead of you? What what types of projects are you working on now?
1: Let's see. Or, or have you just released? Um, do, do you have books that are just out now? Well, my fifth book, uh, my fifth poetry book, Ragged Eden, that's coming out of uh Glass-Lyer Press next year. Um, sometime in 2019, we don't have a, a firm deadline yet. And then my sixth uh, fantasy book, is coming out uh, that will probably end up being 2019 as well, and then meanwhile I have, of course, you know, yeah, you know what this is like. Yeah. I have two or three or four poetry manuscripts, you know, taking up, collecting dust up my hard drive. Some narrative ones, some more experimental ones. So then I have about I think two or three that I'm sending out right now, and then another uh, a brandy, totally different fantasy series I'm starting or working on. And then a handful of kind of sci-fi, fantasy short stories, um, and then a few more like uh, creative nonfiction or flash nonfiction pieces too.
0: So, mm. where where are you most excited about out of all those?
1: Oh, you're not allowed to ask that. Because oh, <laughs> <think. laughs> sometimes, I just, sometimes don't... it's
0: different than what's coming out. You're like you're like happy that these books are coming out, but you may actually have something that you secretly. Want to be devoting more of your time to?
1: it's It's tough to say. Um uh, it's a total cop-out answer, but I'm excited in different ways for all of them. Um uh, one of the things I'm really trying to do lately is work on more short stories. so mm. i uh, I get ah a, when I get a short story, I accept it here and there. that's that's a a special kind of thrill because that I, I kind of turn to short stories you know after I'd already published a couple of the fantasy novels and already had a couple of poetry books. So I kind of did things in different order. So, it's kind of cool, kind of validating, kind of to be able to go back and do that. But other than that, like it seems like whether it's poetry or fantasy, that kind of you know getting that publication, maybe just because I'm insane. Like there's just, there's this additional excitement and this feeling of like all right, I did it, awesome. And then that lasts about four point three seconds. Then after that, I'm like, oh crap, what do I do next? You <laughs> know, mm. and I'm immediately trying to think of like what's going to be the new project, who am I going to contact, what press do I want to work with, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Is there anything that you want to work on or that you've thought of that, I don't know, what would be a dream project for you? Something that maybe, like, I I wonder, given your background, this mixture of obsessions and interests, are there projects that you would want to take on that might be, this is more pie in the sky, sort of a challenge? Like, for instance, uh, like... Is this combination of things something that might lead you to want to work on a computer game or want to work on a film or a screenplay or something else?
1: I would think about something like that except it would be so far removed from my skill set, what limited skill set I have. I kind of wouldn't even know where to get started. But a couple things I have thought about, about, oh, five or six years ago, I was still teaching creative writing quite a bit. And now I've kind of moved into the adjunct composition world which is great in many ways but I really miss teaching creative writing mm-hmm. uh, one ways you know one of the ways I kind of stay limber in that is I, I'm the poetry editor of Atticus Review so that lets me kind of work with people in that sense but I really wanted to try to get back into teaching creative writing but obviously as everyone knows there are very very few opportunities for that so one idea I've tossed around is trying to do some kind of YouTube thing with like very uh kind of detailed craft lectures on line breaks and scansion and syllable count and free verse and all all these kind of little, little tricks that I was privileged to be taught and try to kind of share them that way. But mm-hmm. I haven't quite found the energy to get started on that yet, but that's that's one of the things I've been thinking about.
0: So. yeah, I feel like we're living in a period of time where um the standard, the default models for or the the paths, I guess, a better way to say it, the career paths that most people expected to take after an MFA or after a PhD in in literature and creative writing or creative writing have changed. There's just not. You're right. There's just not as many opportunities to teach creative writing formally, like within the housed within a university, in especially in a full time, tenure tra- track position. So I I think you're right. I think we're living in a period where you know, perhaps we do move to models where we teach, we pass on that knowledge online through, yeah. through YouTube or through um, other video sites, or we we find ways to um, to teach outside the academy.
1: Yeah, one thing I love to do is kind of do guest readings, guest lectures. You know, really any chance to get to work with writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of my dream life, I suppose, would be is actually <laughs> there's not exactly a fortune should to be made in poetry. Uh, but if I could, you know, make a living, uh, keep the lights on with fantasy and then, you know, still be able to write all the things I want to write and just travel around and do, even if they were free, just do free community workshops anywhere I could. That's how to me. That sounds like a dream life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm with you on that. If there if there's some way to make it work, I would I, I think in the olden days we would have patrons and they would just. Yeah. um yeah, they would be our financial backers, so we could actually do these things. Alas, 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 indeed. Are there any other obsessions that um, that you've thought of? You know, over the course of this conversation.
1: Uh, let me see another really weird obsession um, lately. Like, I always have really bad insomnia, so I tend to watch documentaries on YouTube. I'll watch two or three or four or a dozen a night. Uh, but one subject I keep coming back to lately is number stations. Which is something I didn't really know too much about, but I remember hearing them when I was a kid, and just there really isn't that much information to learn about them. Uh, All they really have is the recordings, but it's kind of interesting to watch the different theories about how these things came about, where they're still going on, you know, all that kind of stuff. All this weird speculation.
0: So, so for those that aren't familiar with number stations, uh, do you want to explain, or are you just going to rattle off a list of numbers for people instead?
1: Yeah, there's a, few, there's a few different ones. Uh, some of them aren't going anymore. Uh, the Lincolnshire Poacher is one of the famous ones. But basically, it was a, it was a shortwave radio station that would just sometimes, sometimes on a set schedule, sometimes randomly, start uh, playing out numbers. Like a, a computerized voice reading numbers. Four, three, two, one, five. Just numbers going on and on and on. And no one really knew what these were about. Who was playing these numbers? Why are they doing this? Uh, But speculation was that it was somehow involved in espionage because if it weren't, why would they not be arrested for doing this for like decades and decades? Uh, In fact, there have been like spies who were caught, you know, transmitting these things and collecting the codes. But no one, they're completely impossible, they're mathematically impossible to decipher. So it's this kind of weird thing. I remember hearing them as a kid and thinking, what the heck is that? (laughs) But when you hear the recordings, there's, there's really no information in the game. You could find out when this was played. But even if you have the numbers, all you have is a, a string of like 200 or so numbers. You have no idea what it means or who it was sent to or whatever. So,
0: Would, would the numbers cycle? Would they loop back?
1: or uh, Somewhat. So they would they would introduce a number that is speculated to be the code, like a five-digit number, let's say, and mm-hmm. that says who the message is meant for because anyone who has a shortwave radio can hear these. So then what, the person who's supposed to, quote-unquote, hear it Turns on the radio, they hear this number. Oh, okay, that's my message. And they just write down strings and strings of numbers. Uh, and they do repeat sometimes, depending on the way the station works. And then they somehow figure out, they decode this into their message. Uh, another theory was that the numbers don't actually mean anything. That it was just put there for misinformation or the as a prank or as a joke mm-hmm. or by some libel government to make everybody think that there was something going on when there wasn't. So it's an interesting uh, question that has absolutely no answer. It's, it's impossible to really figure out what they're for mm-hmm. or what any of them to say.
0: Interesting. So numbers stations. It actually, uh, what's, I'm trying to remember the name of that podcast series that kind of plays with that idea as well. Um,
1: I probably, it's on the tip of my tongue. I think I know what you're talking
0: yeah, about. Yeah. I mean, they, they play with that and they also kind of make up, it's a whole fictitious uh, community. Yeah. You know, and well,
1: is it Welcome to Night Vale?
0: Yes, it's Welcome to Night Vale. Yeah, yeah. If
1: you move to Madonna, that's the one I I just heard recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So they they definitely play into that tradition, and then they kind of go off on their own, kind of wild, weird, you know, imagination. Um, yeah, I love that. yeah. I think there is something fascinating about these like things that we cannot quite. Again, it goes back to things we can't quite explain or can't quite articulate you know here here is this mysterious artifact you know in this case it's a sound artifact it exists in the air broadcast and what meaning does it have we are not entirely certain but we believe it probably has a meaning we just don't know Yuck. how to decipher it it feels like a level removed from poetry poetry we hope that there is some baseline meaning that people are going to pull from the text Um, we hope, hope. (laughs) but I I think, yeah, there, there, but there is something fascinating about it. There's uh, I feel like sometimes we encounter this when we read things that might be categorized as magically real, that they feel familiar. And at the same time, they are really unfamiliar to us. Um, there's something odd, a little bit uncanny about the experience. I think a a little bit of Fatal Calvino's writing or, um, Or Marquez's writing, and and sort of the ways in which we feel like we're almost we almost know it, and yet it is still somehow magical, still somehow not quite
1: real. Yeah, I think that's what drew me to I guess quote unquote Eastern verse, which I especially read in journals like Modern Haiku and Frog Pond and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. because when I was trying to kind of loosen that stranglehold I had on the reader's ability to perceive what I was getting at and just giving a really strict, almost mathematical interpretation. Uh, One of the things, one of the advice, pieces of advice I kept getting was focus more on image even if you don't know what it means because part of you will still know what it means. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, uh, Eastern poetry is a wonderful resource for that because you get an image with as little ego as possible. You just use the image, the the narrator may not even really be in the poem. And you just see this image as like a snapshot and you instinctively, instantly have a feeling, but you don't know if that's what the reader intended. You don't even know what the feeling really means, yet part of you does know what it means. And I really like that that uh, that way that your, your brain, or for lack of a better term, your soul, I guess, can kind of go way, way, way beyond the mind's ability to perceive things. Like there's a limit to language, and poetry is one of the ways you can, you know, make this sort of quantum leap beyond what language and logic can actually tell you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that somehow it is greater than the language itself. I, I think what's fascinating, too, is how much of that is a product of the slippage between languages. When we talk about a lot of, the, a lot of um, Tang Dynasty you know, Chinese poetry, or we talk about you know, Japanese haiku from a particular period, frequently what we're also encountering is just a completely different way of thinking about language communication the characteristics of japanese or the characteristics of chinese allow for some things to function like you said without the ego being literally present you know that they can the self can be removed or erased and philosophically that's often you know that's that's part of the philosophy that governs a lot of the writing especially during those periods but yeah. it, it, it's, it's interesting. The, the work of translation is largely doing the same thing we've been talking about, grappling with something that we don't know quite how to articulate.
1: Yeah, and it's very interesting for me as someone who doesn't speak Chinese, doesn't speak Japanese, to read all the different translations. Uh, for example, the, the famous haiku about this, uh, a frog jumping upon sound of water. I've seen just that simple haiku translated about a million different ways, <laughs> and they all sound so different. So if you ask me, well, which one is quote unquote accurate to the language, I couldn't tell you. All I could tell you was I like when I just read it in English, I with my personality and my, you know, idiocies, idiosyncrasies, I prefer this version to that version. Mm-hmm. But is it the, the correct one? I have no idea. Probably it may not be. You know. So
0: there, there is actually something I guess you could also say that that translation, that experience of encountering something through, through translation is very much. A, a cubist experience in that we it's it's broken up into all these fractured bits. Each of them is a slightly different perspective on the thing that it's trying to represent. None of them are yeah. fully, completely accurate, yet taken all together, we get a step closer to understanding it.
1: Exactly, which is an idea I love because it it's also sort of goes with, I'm totally nerding out here, but the whole idea of quantum physics that if you zoom in and in and in and in, you know where does where does the beach ball end and the air start? Well, you can't really tell. Yeah, all well, you can do with a probability, but you can't say it's exactly, you know, one micron here or there. It could be a little bit this way, or a little bit that way. Uh, so, in a sense, everything is fractured. We just don't see it that way because it would drive us nuts. But it is sort of the reality. So it's it's fractured and not fractured at the same time. Right. So I, I love that contradiction and that total paradox that we live in. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I think this is a good place to to kind of start winding down. Do do you have a couple poems you'd like to share with us on our way out?
1: Sure. Uh, Here's one called Thoughts and Prayers. I don't expect historians will mention the shadow of windmill blades easing across the highway at dusk, nor the blackened pans soaking in my sink under a faint sheen of cooking oil But they might have something to say about the fact that this year, more kids died in school than American soldiers killed overseas, fighting in deserts that lack our tolerance for ballots and metal detectors. I suspect you won't believe me when I tell you how important it is to properly align your shower curtain, mend the torn window screen, praise a colleague for his latest book, though he refrains from mentioning yours. But I think your grandchildren will ask about bump stocks, safety drills, paranoia over alleged crisis actors transcending our fear of bullets, thwarting our best solution, which only comes in trophies and goes on making nothing happen. Here's another short one. Text message between wildfires. I wanted to tell you about the clouds. How they moved like sign language over the freeway this afternoon, momentarily shading great swaths of knuckle to knuckle traffic from a sun already bruised by carelessness, hinting at some other world woven into ours, the way physicists say there are dozens more dimensions upholding the bones of our reality. Only autocorrect changed it to cows. And so for the rest of the day, as I worried between errands, I imagine mottled herds floating by, flipping their county-sized tails, their throats ringing like church bells.
0: Wow. And are these from a book that's, uh, is this out of a current collection or one that you're working on?
1: Uh, these are all pretty new. So I think, uh, I'm still tinkering with the order, I think uh, the first one, Thoughts and Prayers, that's going to be the title poem for a new manuscript. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one, I think I'm, that's either going to be in that one or I might try and fit it into Raggedy, which is coming out pretty soon. Okay. I'm quite sure, but I'm all they're both new. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you today and uh, to to kind of take a journey through these all these different obsessions and their their orbit around the things we cannot quite name or say. It's, I mean, I think it's a rare treat, too, that we've been able to kind of delve into two genres as well. Is there anything that you would like to uh, pass on to our listeners?
1: Let's see. Just to say that if they're not always listening to your podcast religiously, they definitely need to because you guys are awesome. Thanks for listening to
0: another episode of The Lit Fantastic. Our guest was Michael Meyerhofer, poet and fantasy novelist. His fifth book of poems, Ragged Eden, is forthcoming from Glass Liar Press. He also serves as the poetry editor of Atticus Review and is a well-accomplished fantasy fiction writer. For more information, please visit him online at www.troublewithhammers.com. That's www.troublewithhammers.com. And to listen to this episode and previous episodes of The Lit Fantastic, visit kboo.fm and look for The Lit Fantastic in the archive, or visit us online at www.thelitfantastic.com. We are also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. As always, it has been a pleasure to be with you and share with you the wonders and the strangeness of authors and their obsessions. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken.